Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Sheep Thrills. Uh, my name is Emily Lamb, and this is WRGW. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I hope you guys are all enjoying this lovely, lovely fall weather uh, here in Washington, D.C. I know I am. It's a little, getting cold finally, but I personally am enjoying the leaves. <laughs> so we've got, as always, a lot to talk about this week. Just today, just the last, like, 12 hours were slightly insane. I'm not going to get into all of it today because I kind of need a little bit of time to digest and unpack <laughs> everything that went on this morning, but we're going to talk about a couple things that happened today. Um, but we had a lot going on this week. Um, we're going to be talking about the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. We're going to be talking about um, the results from the Glasgow Climate Summit that just wrapped up this weekend. And then we're going to be talking about, this is for my dad, uh, shout out Tom, um, they're going to be talking about a new Pew Research study uh, on internal party divisions. Um, we're going to talk about what that means for the future of the Republican and Democratic parties. And then finally, we're going to finish off the hour talking about some election updates. The midterms are officially a year away. <laughs> so we're going to start really digging in um, kind of every week moving forward. Um, talking about what those midterms are shaping up to look like, both in the House and different gubernatorial races, and just what's what what the next year of our lives um, is really going to look like in terms of electoral politics. But with that being said, we're just going to jump right into it. So again, the first thing I want to talk about today um, is the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Um, so for those of you who are unfamiliar or just like weren't paying attention, kind of when all this news started coming out, um, Kyle Rittenhouse was, um, at, at the time he was 17, now he's 18, um, he was, he's an Illinois teenager, and um, he killed two people and wounded another um, last summer in Kenosha, Wisconsin, during quote-unquote unrest, um, and he was put on trial for homicide in Kenosha. Um, and this was, this was following um, another police shooting that happened um, in Wisconsin, and so that these, these protests were a response to the, to that killing, and then obviously it devolved into into more violence, um, like during the protests. So his trial actually was was basically all of the last week, maybe the last two weeks, um, and so the trial officially just ended. Closing arguments are currently underway, and then once those are done, I think they're slated to probably wrap up today or tomorrow. The jury will deliberate, and then we will get um, kind of a verdict. Eventually, who knows how long they're they're going to deliberate? But I think it's important that we just talk about. Um, kind of what this what this trial means because it, it's not as significant as um, the George Floyd trial that happened when last spring about six months ago now um, because obviously that was a trial that was trying to see whether or not police would actually be held accountable for like held accountable themselves by the justice system and this is more of like an extra judicial. Um, you know, this is this is more about like larger race relations and the response to the Black Lives Matter protests and whatnot. Um, so I think it's just like kind of an interesting dynamic between those two trials. Um, and like with the George Floyd trial, the jury did not deliberate for a long time. They really just kind of figured it out and moved along. Um, and obviously, it, it it went well for for supporters of the Black Lives Matter protests and George Floyd's family and all that. It's going to be interesting to see if um, this trial works out the same way, and I don't necessarily think it's going to, but I just want to get into some of the some of the details of the trial. So he's currently being charged with five felonies. Um, I'm, nobody cares about what those specific charges are, but basically he's being charged with two counts of felony homicide for the two people he killed, and then one account of felony attempted homicide for um, the person that he injured. 
and then he was being charged with a misdemeanor possession of a dangerous weapon while under the age of 18. And then that um, unlawful firearm misdemeanor was actually dismissed today by the judge. Um, so now, and then there was another charge, so it went from six to five, basically. Um, so now, basically, the, the main focus of the trial are those felony homicides, um, and they, they're basically trying to argue, the, the defense is arguing self-defense, that he was there just kind of as like a bystander, he was there to as like an upstanding citizen, um, and the prosecution is arguing um, that Rittenhouse basically turned himself into like an extrajudicial vigilante, uh, and without any provocation, shot and killed two people and then injured another one. Um, so the, the, the quote that, was, that came through in the trial was that he, quote, wanted to protect property and offer first aid. Although, of course, he was there with a semi-automatic weapon. So I guess I don't, I don't know how much first aid you can do with that. I don't know. <laughs> I, to, frankly, I don't know if he had any Band-Aids on him. Um, but who knows? Um, so the, the, the trial is basically in chaos from the beginning. I think this was such a high-intensity trial because he was such a young person who committed this crime or whatever um and then also i think it was so high profile from when it happened like i remember reading the news the night it came out and then it got so big where you know elected officials were talking about it and there was this there's this republican pack i think that like raised like two million dollars for his bail and then there were stories about him um about Kyle Rittenhouse, like, being in a bar in some other state where he wasn't allowed to be because of the, like, the rules of his bail, and, like, I just, he kept, he kept coming up throughout the year, um, and so it was kind of a, this is a high-focused trial, like, we, we knew that this was gonna kind of be one of those things that people were just, like, paying attention to, um, and so the, again, and again, so the trial is basically in chaos directly from the beginning. Like, we knew <laughs> that it was not going to be pretty, and it was not going to be, like, a nice, fluffy trial. Well, first of all, it was not going to be a nice, fluffy trial because the crimes were pretty aggressive. Again, it's a 17-year-old kid who brought a gun ac across state lines and then murdered two people. Not that I'm biased in any way. I'm not a jurist. It does not matter <laughs> what I'm saying about it. Um, hopefully... The jury isn't listening to the show because I think that might be like a conflict of interest that might have to get dismissed from the case. Um, but regardless, the we knew that it was going to be insane, and the the judge basically was under kind of pretty strict scrutiny from the very beginning. So the 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 one thing that he said in the very beginning, his name is let me make sure I actually have it. I know I have it. His name is Bruce Schroeder. He's the judge in the trial, and. Uh, they said basically from the very beginning when they were kind of like setting, you know, they were choosing the jury, they were setting all the rules for the trial. Um, the judge said that the victims could be referred to as, quote, looters and rioters if they could, pr if the um, pros if the defense could prove that they were involved in those acts, but they could not under any circumstance be referred to as victims, which is a little interesting. Um, so the, the one thing that is important about that, I know that that headline was kind of out there everywhere being like, Judge says that the the Rittenhouse victims can't be referred to as victims, but they can be referred to as looters and rioters. I think that the headlines were slightly misleading because I do think that it's a dumb rule, but it is. It's not just a rule that um, this judge was using in this trial. That's a rule in his court in general, um, and I think that like generally that that's a good thing because it you know it protects it. It adds um you know because it's innocent until proven guilty. So generally, it, it protects defendants, um, and it, it kind of puts less pressure on them to 
because um, you know the, the the burden of proof is with the prosecution, right? They're to have to prove that something wrong to happen as opposed to proving that something didn't happen. Um, so I I don't think that like and the word victim does have a lot of like political weight and it has a lot of um, it, it does have a very specific connotation when you use the word victim. So I think in this particular instance, of course, it's easy to say, oh, well, they are victims and so they, sh- they should be referred to in that way. But I, I, I hesitate to say this, but I do understand where the judge is coming from in that situation. I don't necessarily think it's a good rule, but it is a rule that he's consistent with um, throughout um, all of his trials. The looters and rioters thing, I think, is kind of silly. Um because the, 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 the victims, the people that died, aren't the ones on trial. So I think that, that it's just kind of a double standard there in that you can't use the word victim because that's going to make Rittenhouse look bad, but you, can't use, but you can use looters and rioters if you can prove it, quote-unquote, if you can prove it. Um, and then that's going to kind of make Rittenhouse look better. Um, and so those rules, I think, are, while they're supposed to be, you know, in, you know the, I, th- I just think that there's a, there's a bias there towards the um towards the defense but it it is a loaded word and like there's even conversations like within like this is kind of a tangent but like within general social justice movements there's a lot of conversation about whether or not to use the word victim right like in terms of like situations of sexual assaults and things like that do people want to be referred to as victims or do they want to be referred to as survivors so i do like the word has a lot of um, weight and a lot of implications, and so I understand wanting to wanting to use better language um, in a in a court situation like this. However, is it biased towards the defense? Probably. Is that generally a good thing? Also, probably. Um, regardless, the judge also has like a very interesting track record um, with what he has seen as like admissible in murder trials. There was a trial that people were citing in like the eighties, um, maybe it was the nineties where he wouldn't let a, basically, a letter be admissible in court. Uh, and the letter basically, it was it was a murder trial, I think, I don't remember all the details, but I think a, a woman was murdered by her husband, and she wrote a letter basically saying, I feel threatened by by my husband. Um, and he did not let the, the um, letter be presented as evidence in court. And then, basically, the, it was tried again in the Supreme Court, and they let the letter in, and then they found... The, the husband guilty. So just interesting. And then there was another case in the 1980s where he ordered a babysitter that was accused of molesting a child to submit an AIDS test and then began requiring sex workers who appeared before him to do the same for no apparent reason, which is, you know, it kind of has very little to do with this specific case, but it's just like a couple interesting decisions that he's made. I do kind of think that also, again, this trial is so high profile that people are going to be doing a ton of digging into a ton of different things just to see what's what's going on, like what all the different layers are. It's also, I think, you know, regardless of how this trial ends up, what whatever result happens at the end of end of this, I doubt is going to be actually the last step. I, the, someone will appeal. Someone will try to you know get a mistrial declared. They'll try to do the whole thing again. And so I do think it's probably like a tactical thing on both of their parts, both parties' parts, to um, kind of set up the fact that oh, there's maybe more to the story in this trial than what we're seeing on the surface. So when they try to declare the mistrial or they try to, you know, do something else, they can point to all of these news stories and all this, this stuff that's been swirling around around the trial to kind of set up some kind of, like, you know, social so, social approval of the of the situation. So he's getting a lot of... 
the judge is getting a lot of credit from conservative newscasters. And they're like, oh, this guy's great. He's the best. Like, he's doing such a great job. And all of the Democrats are kind of mad at him just because of all the things I just talked about. And also, um, they, kind of, they just feel like he is um, just solely on the side of the defendant and he's not being a fair arbiter of justice. I don't know whether he deserves the credit from either side. Um, I definitely think that he is more on the side of the defense, but I'm not sure if he really deserves all of the clout that is being given to him by conservative newscasters. Maybe he is. Maybe I haven't just done enough research into him, and I obviously, I didn't watch all of the trial. I only watched a couple minutes of it, so I don't know exactly what his dynamic was with Rittenhouse. I don't know what his um, interactions were like with the prosecution, with the defense lawyer, but I, I just I just don't I think that there's maybe like the a lot of what's like especially the the victim terminology I understand why that's such a sticking point for a lot of people but I think that it was kind of misleading again because it is a consistent rule throughout um, all of his different trials so anyway I just I feel like that's and then of course there is like the 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 fact that the judge meant quote many of the judge's rulings have appeared to favor the defense so there's you know, the, the fact that he dismissed one of the charges, the, the misdemeanor, uh, fire, yeah, the unlawful firearm misdemeanor got dismissed. Um, so that's definitely something that falls on the side of the, um, defense. And then a couple other rulings that happened throughout the, um, throughout the trial that have seemed to, you know, favor, favor the defense. So I think in, t- in terms of that, the, the, the track record of the judge does tend to, um, protect the defense, even if sometimes in, in the past, um, the judge has tended to support the prosecution. I think it's interesting. I think there's something there. I think they probably, I actually, I don't know exactly how this works, but I feel like they maybe should have chosen a different judge for this specific trial because he kind of had these like random skeletons in his closet. Um, but they did what they did and it is what it is. And the, and the results will be what the result is. But kind of getting into the actual case, it's, it's, it's very difficult. No, it's not even that difficult because I don't understand how you can claim self-defense when he purposefully took a gun and then, you know, brought it into a dangerous situation. Like, I don't understand why you bring a gun into a situation like that if you don't intend on firing it, I guess. I, it just, it seems, it seems crazy to me that he can claim self-defense in this situation because... We, well, first of all, we don't know whether or not it was instigated in any way. And that's, of course, like the sticking point of the whole case is, was he was he being threatened by the victims? And is that why he, you know, shot the gun? And, you know, the, 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 the main thing here also, like this was a, a whole night of protests. And there were lots of different people there who were um, kind of police officers and um, vigilantes and whatnot. And the only person that killed anybody was Kyle Rittenhouse. Like, the only deaths that happened that night were at Kyle Rittenhouse's hands. So you have to think that if there was some, like, large instigation of violence, then there would have been more casualties. There would have been more people who were dead or injured. Um, And so I think that's confusing, and I think that argument is confusing. Um, But, so the the, the current kind of decision, so now now that they're in closing arguments... The, they, the, the judge, which, by the way, this is something that's kind of a little bit more pro-prosecution, um, is that the jury can consider lesser charges and then determine whether or not he actually like provoked the attack. So it's giving the jury a lot more freedom in determining what Rittenhouse was 
guilty and not guilty of. So we we know empirically, like it happened. He did kill two people, but we don't know if he provoked the attack of any kind in any kind, or whether they attacked him unprovoked, or whether he Rittenhouse provoked them, or or whatever. And so in you know in giving the jury more room to do, to do lesser charges instead of like the first degree homicide charge. Um, it kind of again it gives it gives the jury more space to if they disagree on that first degree homicide charge then they can they can agree on a lesser charge and then there will still be consequences for Rittenhouse maybe not the extent that some people would like including myself frankly um, but there will it it won't result in the jury not being able to make a decision because they have to decide on these really extreme high charges that are going to result in him being in jail for sixty years they can bring that sentence down um, and then ultimately be able to come out of this trial with a decision again that I think is going to be appealed but regardless um and so this yeah this is a kind of a ruling in favor of the prosecution and the self-defense charge the self-defense um defense self-defense defense doesn't hold if Rittenhouse was the aggressor and if there is the existence of a provocation right so if he provoked them uh, in any way and then there it kind of escalated from there then he can't claim self-defense if he was the one that kind of instigated the violence and of course we don't know whether or not that is i all of the evidence was presented the closing arguments are being made it is kind of up for, up to the jury to decide um but it certainly is interesting um that they are kind of being able to kind of look at different charges beyond kind of the five charges that were that were initially given so again, it's going to be interesting to see how long the um, deliberation takes. It's going to be interesting to see kind of how the response to the um, result compares to the the George Floyd trial. I'm just comparing them because they're they're two like the two I guess highest profile um, at at this point at least two highest profile um, trials that have kind of come out of of kind of the Black Lives Matter protest that happened. I guess it, not even last summer but two summers ago um was it two summers ago wow time time moves at such an interesting pace huh anyway um so like i don't think anybody's going to be out on the street protesting if he walks out free but i do think that it's going to say say something about race relations in our country if um kyle rittenhouse kind of gets off scot-free without any charges and i do think that it's going to maybe exhaust i mean either way frankly i think that the only thing that can happen with a situation like this is that race relations are going to get worse and the issues that currently exist are just going to be exacerbated even more um but it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how because this is also not as like it's not as black and white of a case as george floyd because george floyd we had footage of the entire situation from start to finish with this we have like some footage we have a lot of like you know witness testimonials we have obviously the uh, we have we have um we had the one the one victim that was injured but survived he we have his testimony um but we don't have all we don't have every single detail and we do know that he took a gun into a protest and he killed two people and so we can hold him accountable for that but in a you know in a legal sense you do need that like extra um analysis to be able to say he it was a premeditated murder um, stuff like that. So anyway, we'll we'll obviously see how long those deliberations take and we'll talk about the results once they come out. But anyway, I just wanted to give an overview of that because it seems 
I just didn't want to ignore it while it was happening, um, just because it's it's a little bit depress extremely depressing. I should say it's extremely depressing, um, but I think it's important that we talk about, you know, how these issues of race relations are being treated within the justice system, uh, and whether or not the justice system is doing what it needs to do to protect the people that need to be protected. So, anyway, moving on from that, guess what? We're talking about the climate again because that that's that that it's an important thing that's going on right now and uh we do need to talk about kind of everything that is um going on with with um climate negotiations in in the world frankly so the COP26 climate um summit that we talked about 2 weeks ago and 3 weeks ago i believe um has finally come to an end 2 weeks of negotiations in Glasgow with world leaders and activists and of course shock and to no one to no one at all world leaders and activists express their quote-unquote disappointment with the results of the summit and again i for one am absolutely shocked that this summit was so promised it was going to be such an amazing beautiful thing and then it just turned into like kind of nothing but a lot of empty promises again i for one am shocked absolutely shocked so the the so this was again it was two weeks of negotiations and then the week before that or the weekend before that was the G20 summit again they came out with just like the G20 summit they came out with a lot of promises but not a lot of actual commitments um and so they the basically what they the what they ultimately pledged to do was to quote pledge to further um action to curb emissions to include more frequent updates on progress um and then you know to include additional funding for low and middle income countries. So I did talk about that a couple of weeks ago but a lot happened with that so we're going to get into it. The 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 important thing there with the additional funding provision first of all like that was the that was the main sticking point of this entire summit was how much money are um the leaders of the, the developed world rich countries going to commit to this process and then what does what does that commitment look like? And so the the really the really important thing that happened right at the end of the summit was that the the language in the agreement said that they were going to help to phase out fossil fuels in um developing countries so they were going to work harder to help developing countries shift to cleaner energy sources and again quote phase out um fossil fuels but um the language was changed last minute by China and India and India to go from phase out to phase down so basically, it went from meaning something to meaning absolutely nothing because I from from what I understand, there's no infrastructure speaking of infrastructure, we got to talk about that at the end. Um there's no um like legislative legislative piece about like how long the phase down is going to take. What percentage of um fossil fuels are we going to remove every year, every 2 years? You know what does that process look like? So now it just instead of saying phasing out, which is a direct commitment, um, it says phase down, which basically can mean nothing or everything. It could mean phase down to zero, um, but more likely it means phase down to a little bit less than what it's being used for now. Um, and that was a really big issue for a lot of leaders, including uh, members of the e the U.S. and the EU almost combined U.S. and EU and said ES, which is not correct. Um, and so that's, it, it isn't, a, like, people were very disappointed about that language change at the very end. Um, but if you, again, if you don't have China and India signed on to a climate agreement, the climate agreement means 
very little considering um, how many how, how much emissions is, are produced by China and, and India. Um, but it, it just goes to kind of it goes into the question of how do how do you encourage progress without accidentally stopping progress, right? So that was, uh, uh, you know, there was an, some anonymous interview with a U.S. negotiator or staffer or something. They said, you know, quote, how do you transition in a way that's not so disruptive as to block progress, but to enable progress, right? So, I mean, I kind of think that's dumb because the whole point of renewable energy, it, well, not the whole point, there's a lot of points to renewable energy. One of the main things is that you can, you know, use renewable energy to create new jobs, right? You can, um, and you can teach people how to create this technology and then hire more people to build the technology and install the technology and so on and so forth. Plus, there's the actual issue of the scientific innovation, which is good for everybody. Innovation is a good thing. Um, and so to spend money on encouraging that innovation just goes right into enabling progress. And I don't know if it blocks progress at all. Um, but that's the, you know, that's the main question. Um, and it, again, this is the, it kind of went from a, a significant commitment by the world community to help developing countries to a commitment by no one to do nothing, which is great. Um, so, but they're still focused on limiting global climate change to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And that was the decision that was made in the 2015 Paris Accords, which, by the way, 2015, six years ago, these, these, the Paris Accords have been going on for six years. And again, not to talk about the passage of time again, but I don't know about you guys, but that made me feel really old. Because I remember when the Paris, like I was politically aware when the Paris Accords were, were going on. And that's a little funky fresh. I don't know about, I don't know about you guys, but I, I think that's a little weird. Um, so the, the main takeaway from that though, of course, cause that was kind of the, the central, the central focus was that, you know, that 1.5 degrees Celsius and then, um, assisting developing countries in kind of phasing down their fossil fuel usage. And so the main takeaway from, from the cells, from the 1.5 degrees Celsius component was that we're falling behind and everything is terrible and no one can get anything together. Um, and like even with the decisions that they made and the pledges that they made, the um, experts have said that the um, temps temperatures in 2030 are still going to be too high considering what they said to cut. So they, in the, you know, quote, Glasgow Climate Pact, which is what it's officially called, they said that they were going, the greenhouse gas emissions were going to be reduced and carbon dioxide emissions were going to fall by 45% from 2010 levels by 2013 to maintain global temperatures at 1.5 degrees, which is a little bit confusing, but you understand. Um, but then experts have said that even if they do exactly that and all these emissions fall by 45% by 2030, the temperatures are still going to be like 2.4 degrees Celsius instead of 1.5. So they, they couldn't even kind of make a big enough cut to um, kind of fulfill the promise that they made six years ago. And again, they, they had the 15 years from 2015 to 2030 to figure it out. And uh, we are rapidly running out of time. We're six years into your 15 years. We are almost halfway there and things are not going as, as quickly as they need to. Um, the other thing in the, in the, in the pact you know, quote, acknowledge the need to reduce emissions faster, great love and acknowledgement, and then, quote, commitments, again, love a commitment, 
um, from some countries to uh, an ending deforestation, reducing methane emissions. And then there was a pledge from the financial sector to move trillions of dollars of investments into companies that are committed to net zero emissions. So that's important. Obviously, the the financial piece of it is a really important consideration. Um, And it basically, but but some people have said is that, you know, the main failure of the conference was financing. They did not come to a decision on how much the these developing countries needed and they did not come to a decision on who was going to provide what funding um which is not great because again things are coming you know things are moving really really fast and all this action needs to take place right now and i guess uh, you know i i keep saying oh i talked about this a couple weeks ago we need to talk about like the thematic trends right that are happening over politics happening throughout politics and yeah even though i talked about something a couple weeks ago it's still important to bring it back um, the just the issue of global cooperation. We can be talking about global cooperation in terms of trade. We can be talking about global cooperation in terms of immigration. But um, all of these different ideas, any kind of international affairs, any kind of international relations is, in my opinion, linked to the need for global cooperation, right? You need um, some kind of like global governance and some kind of global commitment um, to each other in order to actually make sure that Things are getting done in the way that they need to get done. So Biden is back at the table, and I think that that's a good thing, um, but I just don't think that it's quite enough yet um, to encourage the level of of global cooperation that the United States needs to commit to. And I I don't think that it's just a United States thing, too. I think the fact that England left the EU is a big part of that, too, that all of these kind of major world leaders are kind of backing away from the world stage. I don't know how to encourage better global cooperation. I am a second year poli-sci major. I, I, I do not know how to solve the, the largest and greatest issues of the world maybe ever. Um, come back to me in 10 years, maybe I'll have an answer for you. Um, but I do think that it just requires people to kind of put, put aside their selfishness and kind of commit to helping people who can't give them anything in return. Um, yeah, so I think I, I do think that like this financing thing is a major component of it. I also think that the um, the the component about more frequent updates I actually think is great because um, I think that um, like data wise, data is so important to all of these issues because if you aren't collecting enough data, you don't know what's working, what's not working, where the money's going, and then things can get lost and things can get confused. So I'm a big fan of data collection, um, and so I'm I'm, I'm kind of I think it's good that that's a component of it because now if you're if you're doing research into what mechanisms are working every six months, then you can course correct as needed, as opposed to coming back together every five six years to um, take a look at the numbers and then realize that you're hopelessly behind and then not be able to kind of pull your pull yourself out of it. But if you're if you're analyzing everything every six months and you're saying, all right, well this worked, this didn't work, let's let's adjust, let's course correct, and then let's move forward. Um, so I do think that's good, but again, it just like everything else, just like every kind of global conference and every kind of like global compromise, right? They're basically saying, oh, we did some great things. We've got a lot yet to do. Like all the world leaders are like, yeah, this was such a great conference. Everyone was so great, but you know, we have a lot to do. We have a lot of things to work on when they really want to be saying we got nothing done. Nothing is going to ever get better. (laughs) Not to be dark. I'm sorry. Maybe I'm a little bit depressing this week. I don't mean to be. I think it's because it's getting dark at 5 p.m. that I'm just getting a little bit, 
uh, <laughs> depressing with sheep thrills. But anyway, um, so the conference was fine. It didn't do much of anything. Um, but again, it's 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 about commitment. So it's going to be to see who's actually following through with those commitments, um, and then how those commitments actually serve to affect. Um, stopping climate change. And I, I'll be interested to see if by 2030 we've actually reached this goal of kind of controlling climate change, but who knows? Who knows at all? Not me. But anyway, that's why I want to talk about the climate. Now I'm going to move on to my last big story of the day, and I'm going to be talking about this Pew Research study. It was called, quote, Beyond Red versus Blue, the Political Typology. And this was great fun for me and my roommates last night. Uh, they released this whole big report about um, this, these, these new political typologies that they released. But they also had a little quiz, like a little <laughs> a, a, a political science research BuzzFeed quiz that you could go on and fill out. And they will t- tell you kind of what political typology kind of based on ideology you fall into, uh, which was fun. I, I sent it to all my friends. I said, fill this out. I'm interested to hear hear what your political typology is. Um, so this is a little bit more technical than what we usually talk about. It's a little bit like more esoteric than like current eventy, but I think it's interesting to talk about. And we're going to be seeing if my political science degree is paying off because this is what we do in my political science degree is we read studies and we talk about what the studies mean. So we're going to see if I'm able to communicate that to you. <laughs> See how it goes. Um, so basically, the, the thesis of the study um, is that they basically said, we know that polarization is a major component of politics. We know that there's a big red versus blue divide in the country. We know that there's a big Republican contingency, there's a big Democratic contingency, very few people in the middle, and that is having XYZ effects on American politics. But what they analyzed was the different political divisions within each party coalition. So there's there's they basically just like dug into the cracks within a party. And we've talked about this a lot. Um the divisions between kind of moderates and progressives within the um Democratic Party, but they kind of went into it a little bit more technically and they kind of pulled out those divisions and talked about again what those implications are going to be for the different parties. So the 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 different levels of of typology that they listed was first is faith and flag conservatives just basically like religious um conservatives i think kind of like the evangelical community they're always going to vote for republicans they're very much pretty far to the right and then they have committed conservatives which are have kind of similar conservative issues but maybe a little bit less religious have like a softer edge on certain issues then there's the populist right, which is a, a conservative group that is rural and has less formal education than the other groups. Then there's ambivalent right, which was um, kind of, I mean, not not exactly this, but uh, conservative, like fiscally conservative, but like slightly, ever so slightly more socially liberal. And then this group is interesting because it's the it's the youngest kind of Republican identifying group, and it's the group that's the most um, anti-Trump. So that's kind of an interesting designation there. Um, and then there's the stressed sideliners, which is not me, although sometimes I feel like it, feel like I am. Uh, and this is the group that's like no clear partisan orientation, low level of political engagement, just kind of very centrist and um, kind of just it has very little, um, just don't like either side quite a lot. And then that's kind of, that goes from right to center and then from center to left. Um, which 
Yeah, so Senator Left. So then there's the outsider left, which is basically they hate the Democrats, but they're very liberal, and so they're going to vote for the Democrats. Um, but like, if presented with a third option, they might kind of go that way. There's the Democratic mainstays, which are just moderate Democratic loyalists, establishment liberals that are pretty liberal, um, but kind of are less persuaded of the need for like sweeping systemic change. And then there's the progressive left, which is kind of the the I, you know, I wrote in my notes, the flag and faith conservatives are the burn it down Republicans and the progressive lefts are the burn it down leftists, liberals. Um, guess which one I am. I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to, I'm going to see what you guys think I am. When I post, when I post on Instagram tomorrow or whenever I get around to it, let me know. What, 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 what typology do you think I am? Anyway, <laughs> um, I feel like I've made it pretty obvious, but I guess I guess we'll have to see. So anyway, um, the main findings of the study, there, there's a lot. It's a really, really long study, so I'm not going to go into everything. Of course, I'll link it and I'll link the quiz so you guys can take a look at all the findings yourselves. Um, the way that the study actually worked, like there's the quiz that you can take that kind of fits you in with your ideology. But of course, they, they, they put together the typologies through kind of more um, rigorous... Um, kind of polling of a, of a larger sample group. So they asked the questions about policy and, and legislation, all that kind of stuff. And then they asked questions about, you know, race and ethnicity and education level and all those different things. So they kind of create a um, kind of model of what a typical person looks like in each of the different um, kind of typology groups. So the, the, the things that I picked up on that were pretty interesting when I was reading through it um, kind of, I was kind of looking for, so the, the point of the study obviously is like, let's look at the cracks between the typology groups and then let's consider what those cracks mean for the future of those parties, right? So the, the, the very interesting thing for me in terms of the divisions on the left were that the outsider left and the progressive left on social issues generally um, had very much the same views. They were, they were the two farthest to the left on a slew of different policy issues. Um, and they were generally, like, on, on progressive issues, they were generally, like, the highest groups. But, of course, like I said, the the typology kind of considers that the outsider left has, like, a, just does not like the Democratic Party. So they're, they're, they're far left, but they're less loyal to the Democrats than the progressive left. And the outsider left, I think I read... I didn't write it down, but I think I read that, like, the outsider left is a pretty young group as well. Um, so it's a young group of voters that um, kind of has this, like, huge disillusionment with the Democratic Party. And so that, that you know, an interesting consideration in terms of um, what the Democratic Party needs to do to, like, hold on to different groups of voters, the Democratic outsiders are very much on the fringes of the coalition, right? They're not as loyal as the uh, progressive left, um, even though they have similar issue positions. So the Democrats need to do something in order to like grab and hold on to um, people who are on the outsider left, because they're, if they're if they're presented with a viable third party, they might just go ahead and vote for them, um, unless they're kind of too pragmatic in terms of um, the chances of a third party candidate, like what my friends was when I was talking to them about it, but. Um, I just think that's interesting that they need, that the, obviously, well, we, we've talked about this a million times, but the Democratic Party needs to, like, desperately change their messaging, um, especially in, in campaign mode, um, because 
if they continue kind of operating down the same path, I think they're going to they're going to lose a lot of people in that outsider left. And kind of moving into the Republicans, um, the populist right aligns more with the left on a couple issues. So the one thing that I noted that was pretty interesting was um, um, it was a question on business corporations making too much profit and then the taxes on um, and then the, the, it was like, yes or no, are businesses, businesses making too much profit? And people on the left and then the populist right were all saying yes, like at pretty high levels. And then for a question of should taxes on household incomes um, over 400K be raised, again, it was a lot of the liberal left and then the populist right that were um, saying yes to those questions, which to me is very, very interesting because the, the conversation around tax the rich is such a um it's such like a culture war kind of thing I, I maybe that's not the correct terminology but it's such a it's such an important um focus right now for so many different campaigns like should we tax the rich should we not tax the rich what should go into the infrastructure bill what should go into build back better what what is what is rich people's responsibility in terms of you know securing the social safety net blah 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 so I think that that's an interesting crack there for Democrats because people are like, oh, the, the socialist tax the rich ideology is not good for rural voters. But like here we have statistical evidence that um, like rural, like lower education Republicans would support taxes on household incomes over 400K being raised. Right. So I think maybe if but then again, when you when you go into the different social issues and issues about like immigration and critical race theory and all those different things, you see that those um, issues are changing, those, those alignments change. But I think that's an interesting, like divisive issue for Republicans. And it kind of opens the door for Democrats to kind of like scoot in and steal some of those rural votes. Um, and it's it's like the rural vote is something that like the Democrats have been working on forever and maybe will never be able to acquire. Um, but I think that it's, it's, that's an interesting, if they continue kind of using that, like reframe that ideology for Republicans, it could potentially recruit a new faction of Democratic voters in rural areas if they're able to kind of, um, make that, make that language more palatable to those rural voters. And then it's kind of the, the, the really interesting, um, piece there as uh, beyond beyond kind of the the division between the parties is the idea of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party and whether or not they're big tent parties right so is the Republican Party a big tent party that can fulfill you know can satisfy a whole bunch of different ideologies no probably not not based off of the statistical evidence given by um um given by the study, right? They said, like, if you don't support Donald Trump, like, you should not be part of the Republican Party. But the Democratic Party is slightly more big tent. Um, and it kind of, if you don't support Biden, people think, oh, yeah, you can still identify as a Democrat. So I think that's interesting. Um, but then again, how big is the Democratic's big tent, big, Democrats' big tent? How, how, how big is the tent? Uh, and how big will the tent continue to be, Right. Um, we talked about the kind of the, the, the chafing happening between moderates and um, progressives on the Hill. How much longer are they going to continue to allow that pressure to build before something gives way and the tent kind of shoves the progressives out and becomes a little bit smaller? Um, and then that kind of goes into the question of, is there a desire to establish a third party, right? Like, what does the political center look like? And the answer to that is like, there are people in the middle who are dissatisfied with both parties, 
but there's just not enough political will there to actually form a new party and there's not enough like energy there to actually do it um because the ambivalent right is too conservative the um outsider left is too liberal and then the um whatever it is, the, the stressed sideliners are not politically engaged enough to actually desire that third party to be created. Like, even if there was a third party, they might not even go out and vote for them because they're just not politically um, engaged or civically engaged um, for a whole slew of reasons. But that's interesting there, too. And then, of course, I think the, the biggest takeaway, I'm not going to go into all the details because it's a lot of like statistics and nobody cares but i think that the divisions between the democratic and republican part but within the democratic party and the divisions within the republican party are already kind of rearing their heads um after the infrastructure vote there was 13 republicans who voted with democrats um and there's a lot of republican officials who are currently calling for them to be stripped of their committee assignments and thus a lot of their influence in the body um and then you know, a lot of like what, you know, what, what you do in a committee is kind of half of what you run your campaign on. It's kind of not what they, what people voters see on the national level, but it's something that's really important. Um, and so we know that the, that, that kind of the Republican party big tent is kind of shrinking down even more, um, because they are, um, they're, they're frustrated about different, about, about the votes that happened. And then is this, is that kind of conversation about stripping them from their committee assignments actually going to hurt them? Maybe. I don't know. Um, some of them are retiring and basically said, this is a good vote. I'm going to vote yes on it. Um, and then a lot of them are from districts like Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, where voting yes on this bill was going to be a good thing for them anyway, um, politically. Like it's going to be something like they campaigned on infrastructure and thus they voted for infrastructure down the line. Um, and so is this, is this going to be an important thing for them? Maybe. And then I think, I just think there's a, the, the, these, these internal party divisions are forcing different elected officials to kind of give up on different ideologies and kind of push themselves back into like the partisan corners, right? So now there's going to be even less of a middle because, um, you know, or party leadership doesn't want to put up with those divisions. They would rather there be like a unified body um, without divisions in it so that they can kind of have more control and more influence over the party and thus over the body. I don't know. Uh, and so I think that means the political center is getting smaller and smaller, but then the political center is, is completely disengaged from politics. So then what, what sh should we be fighting for a political center? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know because I don't think that the political center is necessarily fighting for themselves. And I think that it's it's important that we have a political center, but if they're not going to engage with the political process and they don't if they if they're not going to go out and vote for somebody that they think represents them, um, then they're not going to have anybody that represents them. And that's a little bit on them, which I hesitate to say, because, of course, there are so many barriers to voting. There's so many barriers to getting involved electorally. Um, but I think that, um, and I, I think that, uh, you know, ideological polarization is not a good thing. It's not a good thing. It, it's, it's um, there needs to be people all across the political spectrum from the farthest left to the farthest right in order for there to be like kind of a healthy democracy. And if there's no center, then there's going to be no compromise and yada, 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 on and on and on. Um, but 
again, if, if, if people from the political center aren't getting involved, then there's going to be no one to fight for them because people in power are going to want to continue to control their own voting blocks. So that's kind of all I want to talk about in terms of um, the paper. I thought it was very interesting um, and I enjoyed taking the quiz. So I will send you guys the quiz so that you can take it because, you know, you get to like press little buttons and it tells you a personality trait that you can glom onto and have it be your only personality trait for a couple weeks. Not that I've ever done that with any personality test I've ever taken. But now I want to go into some like rapid fire um, election results um, that happened or quick election updates that happened over the past 48 hours, 24 hours, kind of. Um, they finally called Florida 20 and um, Sheila won in Florida 20. So the, the candidate that was not endorsed by Elsie Hastings' son won, which is very interesting. So she was the one that won in 20 or ran against Elsie Hastings in 2020. So that's very interesting. She's not going to get, well, of course, because the election, the general election isn't until January. She's not going to get sworn in for a while, but the Democratic primary is officially over. Um, other important things it just came out this morning. Patrick Leahy announced that he is not running for re-election in the Senate. He is the Senate pro tempore. So he is the longest running, he's longest sitting senator um, in the Democratic Party. He is 81 years old. He's been in the Senate since the 70s, I want to say. Um, and so that's pretty important that this like Democratic mainstay um, is leaving the body. Of course, Vermont is a fairly safe Democratic seat, so it's not something that's going to be super up in the air in terms of um, whether it's going to mess with like, the balance of Congress. But it is going to have some ripple effects in terms of the entire congressional delegation of Vermont, um, because the person that is most likely to run for the Senate seat is the current at-large um, representative, and so there's going to be an opening for um, somebody new to run for that seat. Um, and Vermont, and I, I learned this today, is the only state that has never had a woman in its congressional delegation. So hopefully, following um, this election, upcoming elect, midterm election cycle, we're going to finally have a Vermont elected um, who is a woman. So that's kind of exciting. And then, last but not least, shock and awe. I'm excited. I don't know. It's kind of fun. Beto O'Rourke is running for governor of Texas. So... As my campaigns and elections professor said this morning, he's going to lose by 10. And we all went, oh, so he, he he's probably going to lose by 10, but it'll be fun to watch. Um, I, I, I just really hope that if Beto doesn't win, I hope that he gets called up into the Biden administration. I feel like he just deserves something like he's just been bopping around being a surrogate for the last four years. And I just I, I, I think that he needs a treat. He needs a reward for his service. Um so we're going to see if that, we're going to, you know, we're still not sure if Matthew McConaughey is running. I guess that'll change things. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Um, but Beto is officially running against Greg Abbott. So that was kind of an expected thing. Um, we always kind of knew that he was going to, he was going to run for governor. So it'll be interesting to see how that um, campaign all works out. You know, any, anything we can do to chip away at Texas um, is a good thing. Because eventually, once Texas falls, so does the Electoral College, and the Democrats will win every presidential election forever and ever and ever. Amen. And I personally am uh, looking forward to that. Um, so hopefully we can, well, we'll, we'll obviously, we're going to talk about Beto, and we're going to talk about the election, and 
believe me, we're going to be talking elections for the rest of our lives. Um, those are the quick election updates I wanted to do. And then last but not least, in the last couple minutes of the show, my insane political story of the week. And that is that Elon Musk and Bernie Sanders have beef on the timeline. You know, sometimes I really enjoy politics, and then sometimes I look at Twitter and I see that Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, is trying to start a Twitter fight with Bernie Sanders. And I just turn my phone off and I say, do I need to change my major? Do I, do I need to just give up on all of this right now? Um, so Bernie Sanders tweeted out something along the lines of, rich people should pay their fair share in taxes, which is something that Bernie Sanders says pretty frequently and is also not particularly hot take, but regardless. And Elon Musk responded, quote, I always forget you're still alive. What? Literally what? I just, I don't even have anything in particular to say about it. I just think it's insane. And he's also getting ratioed uh, pretty aggressively on Twitter right now. Um, it's just like, it's, first of all, it's such a terrible comeback. Second of all, why is, why is, why is Elon Musk trying to start beef with Bernie Sanders on Twitter? I just truly, I truly don't understand what he does with his time. Um, but regardless, I think that Elon Musk needs to get off of Twitter and go spend time with his six children and maybe stop trying to cyber bully Bernie Sanders on Twitter. Just like, I don't know. Is that a hot take? Is that crazy for me to say that he should maybe put down Twitter? Delete the Twitter app on his phone? Go spend time with his children? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. But with that, the other things that happened this week, that it's very complicated, and we're not going to talk about all of it, but I think that it's important to mention also kind of an insane political story of the week, is that Steve Bannon surrendered to the FBI. He was being held in contempt of Congress, and so he just, like, walked into the FBI building, and now he is, he's not being held in prison, but he is, um, he's, you know, he's, he's in the process of, 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 like, going through a trial process, um, because of contempt of Congress, which is pretty interesting, um, and anyway, just in terms of that, Steve Bannon is such a Marvel villain name, and he looks like a Marvel villain, and, uh, the fact that he just, like, stormed into the FBI building this morning and, like, surrendered himself, I think is such a Marvel villain thing to do, and I'm excited to talk about it more because, of course, Steve Bannon will never go away. Why should he? Anyway, but look at that. I managed to get through, again, I managed to get through everything I wanted to talk about within the hour. It's always a miracle when that happens. Um, but anyway, that's all I want to talk about um, this week. Thank you guys so much for listening. As always, feel free to follow on social media. It's at SheepThrillsGW on Twitter and Sheep Thrills Radio on Instagram. DM me, follow me, send me a text, whatever. Um, let me know what you think about the show. Let me know what you want to talk about. Um, and um, yeah, see, so check all of the, the sources and everything on Spotify um, once I release the show later this week. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week. Enjoy this fall weather. Stay warm, stay cozy, and I will talk to you guys later.